Welcome to the Cities Deepening Community podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the health, social isolation, and stepping towards what may be known as the Great Reconnect. So this Cross Canada conversation is going to be both a continuation of our February 17th, 2001 webinar, focusing on the concept of social prescription, along with a discussion around the award-winning film, The Great Disconnect. So my name is Dan Ritchie, and I'm from the Cities Deepening Community team at the Tamarack Institute. And today I'm joined with two guests who are more than acquainted with the connection between our health, social lives, and our natural world. So first we have Tamer Solomon. So Tamer Solomon is a neighboring enthusiast and documentary filmmaker based in Ottawa, Ontario. He's the director, producer, and co-writer of the award-winning documentary, The Great Disconnect. Tamer has also been a guest on our podcast, focusing on knowing your neighbor. So welcome, Tamer. Thanks, Dan. Pleasure to be here. We're also joined by Dr. Trevor Hancock. Trevor Hancock is a public health physician and retired professor at the University of Victoria's School of Public Health and Social Policy. 35 years ago, he helped to develop the Global Healthy Cities and Communities Movement, and now is focused on Healthy Cities 2.0, highlighting the links between the health of people and the health of the Earth's natural systems. In a recent article, Dr. Trevor Hancock wrote on social prescription. He described how in the 1970s, when working as a family physician in a community health center, many of the problems his patients faced could not be solved with medical interventions. These were patients that were socially isolated and could have benefited from social prescribing. And Trevor was also a guest on our most recent Cities Deepening Community webinar, which focused on the concept of social prescription and the role of community. So I wanted to start off our conversations today with talking about what role could community play within the health of Canadians. So an American study of 300,000 participants showed there's a strong level of connection and networks that can boost a person's lifespan by up to 50%. So this meta-study involved observing across all ages, and it revealed that strong social networks are linked to living longer lives. In contrast, the effects on our health due to extreme isolation and perceived loneliness have been shown to be comparable to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. With this link towards our health and social connections, this has been shown through the documentary, The Great Disconnect. Tamer, since airing your film, The Great Disconnect, we have experienced a year of COVID-19. I have a hypothetical question here. If you were to have started the film in 2021, what would change in terms of the focus of this film? Yeah, no, that, that's great, Dan. And I, I think COVID's really exacerbated a lot, I think, but it's also pushed us to be reflective on, I think, what's really important in life. And I think there are two spectrums to connections that we talk about in the film. The first is that we really just need to connect for the sake of connection. And I think getting together with friends who we have similar interests with, just simple interactions within our neighborhoods are really important to our health and well-being. And there's tons of studies showing that. We know that a shake of the hand, a hug, a pat on the back, release happiness hormones within our bodies that technology could never replace. I look at technology as a way to get us through what we're going through. I mean, this is wonderful that we can all be here together. And this is a revolutionary technology that allows us to be on this podcast with you today, Dan. But I do think that it needs to be looked at as something temporary. And I do think that we are all really seeking to all get together in real life once this is over. And I think there's just a funny story I want to tell because Trevor and I have never actually met in person. And I know he normally likes to tell this story, but since I have the mic first, uh, Trevor, I hope you don't mind me telling this. We've been on two panels following two screenings of The Great Disconnect put on by the city of Victoria and by the 
University of British Columbia in collaboration with the Canadian Mental Health Association. We're on this podcast with you, Dan. And when we interviewed Trevor, we actually got together. We hired a videographer out in the city of Victoria to go out and film Trevor. And Trevor and I had a Skype interview, which is absolutely amazing. But we are all, I think, itching to get together. And hopefully either I can get out there or he can come out here and give a talk somewhere. So I think that Ultimately, technological devices are fantastic for us to get together, but I do think that we are all itching to get together in real life. In terms of highlighting the link between our health and our social connections, Trevor, I was wondering if you had any insight towards whether highlighting our level of social disconnectedness as a form of a public health crisis is something that would be valuable. And do you see any challenges in highlighting social isolation as a public health crisis? I think that the place to start in many ways is in evolutionary terms. And, and it is often said of us that humans, we are social animals and we evolved in family groups in, in if you like, tribes or clusters or whatever you would call that. And a large part of our evolutionary success is, comes from our ability to work together and collaborate together. So it's almost baked into our genes that we need to be part of a group and part of a connection. Now, at the same time, I think it's useful to recognize we use different words for different situations. So there is being alone, there's being isolated, and there's being lonely. And they're really quite different things. So being alone is, from time to time, a good thing. And some people are much more content to be alone than others, and they don't feel lonely or isolated. They're just content to be that way. So we shouldn't assume that absolutely everybody needs a lot of social connection. So there's a range, a spectrum of how much social connection people need. Being lonely, feeling isolated, those are very different things. And that's where the problem arises. Out here, for example, on the West Coast, the uh, Vancouver Foundation did a study five or six years ago now looking at what were the big health and social problems in Vancouver. And the number one problem they came up with was isolation and loneliness. I think it is a, a big problem. We live in much smaller family groups than we used to. And while we are connected electronically and digitally in all sorts of new ways, I think that sometimes comes at the expense of personal connection. And that is also a big challenge. So I think these are useful tools. You know, I, I can get together with my friends in England and have a beer while I'm here and they're in England. And that's a good thing. But it doesn't be, as Tamer said, let's get together in the pub and have a beer together. Yeah, you can definitely see that level of the duality with using these tools and the term double-edged sword. And that was highlighted in the film, talking about the role of technology and that level of screen time that we're increasingly receiving. I'm wondering, Tamer, have you noticed any trends that were, were highlighted within your original film that have become increased or are there any trends that have decreased? Yeah, I think one element of technology that we don't often talk about is the algorithms that a lot of social media platforms are accustomed to utilizing. So one of the things that's brought up in the film from Rob Bars, who is interestingly an urban planner, talks about how we are in echo chambers. And so what happens is, is that we are getting fed information that we likely agree with. We are talking to the people who we agree with too much, as Rob Bars had said in the film. And I think that can cause polarization. I think it can cause us to have less empathy for people who have different views than we do, who are from a different culture, a different race, a different gender. So I think things like Twitter and Facebook can cause a lot of polarization and a lot of people are 
divided as a result. So I think that's a huge problem. Media in general, John Halliwell ends up saying in the film, bad news sells. And I think that if you watch any of the top media channels, we get fed a lot of bad news. And so we begin to think that people are not as good as really they are. So, you know, this idea of trust is a huge, huge component that we talk about in the film. And I do think things like social media and media have caused people to trust others less because we're fed an ideal that isn't particularly true. And if we can get back to getting together with people in reality, I think we can get back to that exercise of having discussions, agreeing to disagree, and all those sorts of things. So I think that's probably one of the biggest trends. The thought that came to my mind when Tamu was talking about that is a quote that I've used for many years um, attributed to a French philosopher called Raymond Aron. When inequality becomes too great, the idea of community becomes impossible. There is both the polarization politically, but there's also a polarization socially. If you're rich, you don't see poor people. If you're poor, you if you are seeing rich people, you're seeing them sort of on television with aspirational lives that generates a lot of anxiety too. I think that the level of inequality across income, across gender, across race, across age for that matter, is another part of the problem. And when that inequality becomes too big, then it's no longer we, it's them and us. And so you get a divided society. We don't, for example, have the kind of intergenerational contact that we used to have when you had large extended families. I think all of those sorts of connections or loss of connection is a problem. And so I guess then the challenge is part of my work now, I've set up a small NGO here called Conversations for a One Planet Region. And we're really about how do we get conversations going? I don't think yet we're terribly good at it, but we're slowly moving forward and learning. But we have to have those conversations. And I'd say particularly conversations across racial divides, across income divides, across uh, intergenerational discussions, and particularly, and one way to perhaps bring all of that together is to do it in the context, not of fixing today's problems, but how do we fix tomorrow's problems or how do we prevent tomorrow's problems? So how do we have a conversation about the sort of society we want our descendants to to have? And that is a way of finding some common purpose. And that's another good way of bridging divides is to find the common purpose. Just to echo Trevor I think I alluded to another spectrum of the film that talked about, and Trevor, you end up leading it with the line of just saying that connection and social connections isn't just about connecting for the sake of connection, it's to get together with others to make the world a better place. And I think it's to make the world a better place for our time now and for future generations. And as Trevor alluded, there are so many social issues that we need to address, and we can only address them collectively. And I think that we need to find what is it that interests us to affect change? And I think that we all have an entry point for that. And there's something that we can get interested in. It could be things like climate change. It could be things like poverty. It could be things like anti-racism. There's just so many things that many of us could get involved in that I think is really, really important. So on top of that idea of connection for the sake of the fun of it, we need that other piece, which is connecting to make the world a better place. And there's a lovely example that comes to mind of, of that at a small scale, something I've watched with great interest for the last decade or more, and that's men's sheds, which is an idea that started in Australia and is now slowly spreading around the world. What that is about is the problem that was identified was men particularly 
are not particularly great, for the most part, at talking about themselves and their emotions and their concerns and so on. So the situation that they were faced with was older men who were working in the trades and and laboring or assembly lines or whatever, who then retired, who were, some of them were left with nothing to do, bored, lonely, isolated. And we know, for example, that there's a, a higher rate of mortality in the year or two after retirement. And that may be partly a reflection of that. And so men's sheds were set up like a hidden mental health project. They were set up to provide a space where guys could come together, put in a coffee machine, put in some basic tools and invite them in to do stuff together. Over time, what emerged is social connection, social networking, and then they started to look at what could they do with these tools. And so before you know it, they're fixing the neighborhood's bikes for the kids or fixing up somebody's home that needs it or whatever it may be. It's an example of how you can find at a very local level some nice, simple, common purpose that brings people together. And in the process, they feel better about themselves and about the way the world is. Really love that idea of using that shared experience in those spaces in order to have another agenda in some way of supporting mental health or providing uh, citizenship or advocacy. I think you've really touched on a lot of great points. What are the next steps in terms of the how and what could the reconnect actually look like? So in Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, it suggests that our overall experiences of being in community have been steadily declining since the 1960s. And although efforts to address the effects of reduced community life, such as isolation, have began before the onset of COVID-19, this pandemic has actually uh, temporarily closed many of the gathering places that provided those solutions towards isolation and that feeling of loneliness. And the sudden drop in community activities from volunteering to attending live concerts to visiting local community centers and hubs has negatively impacted Canadians. So based on the recent Angus Reid report, the percentage of those that were saying that they have a good social life has dropped from more than half in 2019 to just one third in 2020. You spoke in your presentation during our social prescription webinar, Trevor, you had spoken about the term of recreation, describing recreation as that form of recreation. I'm wondering if you could dive a bit more in towards what's the intention behind that idea of recreation? How can we find ourselves collectively? And also, how does that relate towards uh, the improvement of the individual? Two or three things I want to follow up on there. One actually is when Tamara and I did that session for the city of Victoria, I came up with the notion that in the face of Great Disconnect, which is the title of the film, what we needed was the great reconnect. And so there's both the notion of reconnection and the notion of recreation or recreation. And I think that they're related. There's another piece in there that I just want to pick up on. It's one of the, oddly enough, one of the beneficial side effects of COVID. And I call it the COVID reveal. That is that we've learned as a result of COVID, how important social connection is. We've learned it is important to hug your grandmother, but also we've learned that there's a lot of people in society that we have undervalued who are absolutely key to the functioning of society, that we've been underpaying them, we've been putting them in you know, part-time, insecure, low benefits, all the rest of it. And we know, incidentally, that that is related to another problem in the US they call the diseases of despair. And they've got a rising mortality rate from the diseases of despair, which is basically suicide, alcoholism, and, and drug dependency. So all of these things, I think, are conflated and are linked. The other thing, incidentally, I'd point out, you mentioned Robert Putnam in Bowling Alone, and 
of course, what he was also looking at in the book was why were, was this disconnect happening? And one of the reasons he came up with, in fact, he thought it was one of the prime reasons, was television. And so you no longer have to go out. And of course, since then, uh, we've had the internet and so on. You no longer have to go out for your entertainment. You can, as we've learned in COVID, which is another, if you like, part of the COVID reveal, you can just sit at home and be, in a sense, connected. And so you don't have to go out. You know, people have had moved their entertainment indoors and in front of a small screen in their living room and were not going out. And I saw it in a, in a somewhat different way when we were trying to do some community organizing in Toronto in a low-income neighborhood. And we were advised, well, don't do it Wednesday evenings at eight because that's when everybody's watching whatever the program was that everybody was watching at the time. We need to think about all these different ways, on the one hand, that we've come to appreciate the value of connection and also to recognize what we've lost in the way of connection. And that should lead us to think about how we can rebuild that connection. Well, I was thinking a couple of things when, when Trevor was talking. The first thing I was thinking just about that concept of undervaluing certain people in society and how COVID has kind of had a positive impact on the sense that we are more reflective on what is truly important. But also, yeah, just really recognizing who in the community is doing interesting things that we may have undervalued. I often think about Ron Finley, who was in our film. And Ron Finley was an activist who lived in a food desert in South Los Angeles. And he alluded to an experience where I think we, we all know exists out there, which is being in a low-income neighborhood that's racialized and marginalized, where people don't have access to basic goods. Um, and I know there's a huge movement in multiple cities who are drawing up their new official plan for what their city is going to look like as we, as we grow as a country and as we grow as cities is just saying people need to have access to basic needs. So this idea of 15-minute neighborhoods has been a huge discussion amongst many, many city planners, amongst NGOs and organizations doing this community development work. But going back to Ron Finley is, you know, this idea is that as citizens, we, we need to act as well. We can't just rely on the bigger bodies of society to kind of solve our problems. The backstory with Ron Finley is that, yes, he's this sort of inspirational character who ends up putting in a garden in front of his house and it inspires people all over the world to plant gardens in front of their, their house. But the, the idea behind his activism was that he lived in a food desert and people couldn't get any healthy food. They had to drive about an hour somewhere in LA to get healthy food. And I think what he did was to just say, well, I'm going to plant food that I can eat and that can at least feed some of the people in my community. The story there is that it was actually illegal to plant in a plot that's owned by the city. And he knew that, and he was taken to court for it. But thankfully, the media got a hold of it. Other activists got a hold of the story, and bloggers and podcasters were getting him on. And he started to talk about, hey, I live in a food desert. I get nothing from the municipality. I'm doing this because this is going to hopefully make some noise. And what ended up happening was that the laws were changed in Los Angeles so that people could actually take over vacant lots, which are all over the place in Los Angeles, and plant edibles and flowers and just beautify the surrounding of, of that area. And I think things like that really create connection. And I think that's something that we can all do. And so I talked earlier about just an entry point for all of us to get involved and do things. That was sort of the, the first piece of, of what Trevor was talking about that I just, I think about connecting in enjoyable ways, but in ways that also cause inspiration amongst others. But there's another piece in there, Tamer, that that story touches on, which for me is very important. And that is what he was also doing was reconnecting people to nature, a very important part of the other sort of disconnect that we've had. So on the one hand, we've had a social disconnect, but the other great disconnect has been the great disconnect from nature. And they're not unrelated. 
they're both forms of disconnection and they both need reconnecting. And in the one case, a social disconnect leads us to undervalue other people and undervalue our connections with other people. And of course, on the nature side, we undervalue nature and we undervalue the importance of that connection. There's a whole big movement around nature kindergarten and forest schools and things like that. And we're learning that not only do people have to be connected to each other, they have to be connected to nature in order to have good health. And E.O. Wilson, the sociobiologist at Harvard, coined the term biophilia. Biophilia means love of nature, but it's really about nature connection. And his view was that humans have an innate need for nature. And I often illustrate this in my talks, and I ask my audience, how many of you have houseplants? And they all put their hands up. And yeah, people can't see because we don't have the cameras on, but I can see over Dan's shoulder and he just pointed back at it. Same here. <laughs> and they are behind Tamer. There aren't any in my room, but they're all over the house. And of course, most people put up their hands. They have houseplants. But then I ask the question, why? Why do we have houseplants? And I think it's exactly an expression of that biophilia, that innate need for nature, and we bring it into the house. So one of the things that I think we need to be thinking about if we're talking about designing cities, how do you design a city or a neighborhood to promote connection, whether it's connection with people or whether it's connection with nature. So planting in the boulevards or street trees or little things. And it's not about how do you get the two million people of Vancouver out into the wilderness. It's really how do you bring nature into the two million people in Vancouver. And so we need to be thinking about the great reconnect, both in terms of social reconnect and in terms of reconnecting with nature. And again, you talk about recreation or recreation. A lot of recreation, as we think of it, is outdoor recreation, walking, jogging, birding, fishing, cycling, you name it. But a lot of recreation, I mean, there's an artistic recreation that is indoors, but a lot of other aspects of recreation are happening outdoors. And that's a way of reconnecting, gardening, community garden. Those are all forms of recreation that are also recreation and that are also about establishing connections. And they're often done with other people, whether you're biking or, or, or jogging or or gardening or whatever. I'm a Morris dancer and it's a very old form of social connection and we forget actually just how old that is. People have danced. I mean, you go back and you find pictographs that are tens of thousands of years old depicting people clearly doing something like dancing and so on. Some of these are very old ways of connecting. Singing together is another wonderful example. Not everyone can sing and not everyone can dance, although I like a supposedly a Maasai proverb. I don't know if, it, if I can walk, I can dance if I can talk I can sing we've gotten away from that idea and so you have to be an expert and to sing and you have to be sort of almost professional you have to be very competent well no you can just sing you don't have to sing in key just sing what you like to sing there's lots of ways of of going back to some of those older forms of connection some of it's done for yourself and on your own and some of it is done with others one trend that I want to also add to is during COVID, I've noticed in my neighborhood the amount of dogs people have gotten. And I think to add on to that idea of that biophilia is that level of care. And I think that people really want to have something to care towards. And I think these have been kind of trends that have been showing up. So I'm curious about how that can exist beyond COVID, how there's trends right now where we do have this level of care, but, but how does that move beyond beyond the pandemic? There's a wonderful couple of stories around when I was working in family practice and we were designated as the family practice for the local psychiatric hospital in, in Etobicoke. So we were working with uh, 
counsellors, and one of them was talking about how people, alcoholics in this case, one of the things they had lost was their ability to care for themselves and they didn't have any positive feelings about themselves and they sort of lost an ability to care for themselves and so they just gave up in despair and descended even further into alcoholism. And what he would do was give them a plant and say, you know, you need to look after this plant, you need to care for it, you need to water it, you need to put it in the sun and so on. And by learning to care for a plant, they learned to care for themselves. And there's another wonderful story out of Wales uh, many years ago now where a lot of uh, elderly people were getting hypothermia. They were living in poverty. They had to heat the room they were in. And to save money, they weren't keeping their houses heated. And so how did you persuade them to heat their houses? What they did was they gave them budgerigars, little birds, sort of miniature parakeets. And they say, this is your new pet, your companion, you know, Mm. for you to talk to or whatever. But this budgie will die if you don't keep it warm. And so they would keep their rooms warm, not to, for themselves, but for their budgie. But of course, in the process, we're, we're saving their own lives. So there's all sorts of dog walking. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I had dogs all my life. Many of our friends are people we've originally met through dog walking. And classically, I know the name of the dog a year or two before I know the name of the owner. But it is a great way. You watch people out dog walking and it's all about social connection. Yeah, that's so true. That concept of pandemic puppies, I think, has been uh, quite common. I think that's what Dan was alluding to. And I don't have a personal pet, but I love the fact that I can get outside. And I live in a very walkable neighborhood. So I, I want to allude to that because I do think being in a walkable neighborhood does influence that. You can get a dog. There's a place for them to walk. There's some fantastic alleyways. So I, I live in a very well-designed neighborhood that allows me to have these simple interactions with people that sometimes never lead to any depth. They may, you know, some acquaintances may lead to some friendships. I do think that it's it's definitely great to really talk about those simple things that can really bring and create connections. So Dan, you were alluding to, so what can we do right now? What can we do as this is kind of getting over? And I think it's the little things. Um, you know, my wife, Sarah, and I ended up putting Christmas cards on the doorsteps of the people that we live in this condo because we didn't know anybody yet. We had moved during the pandemic, so we haven't had that ability to utilize the common spaces within the condo. So we ended up just doing something small like that. And we got one thank you back, which was good enough for the time being. You know, you just never know how these things are, are going to come off. I'm the type of person who will say hi to people on the street and just make eye contact. There are so many little things I think we can do in the meantime to get back to a place where we're connected. And, and hopefully this will all be over soon. I came absolutely right. It is those little things. It's not the really big things. It's lots and lots of little things. Not having to put the pressure on yourself to do something that's so large and aspirational. I just there was something I was thinking about when Trevor was talking about this reconnection to nature, and I was also thinking a lot about an interview I had a long time ago with a professor named Ami Rokach, who does a lot of studies on loneliness. He's a professor at York University, and I remember him telling me that there's a difference between solitude and loneliness. And solitude is something that certain people seek intentionally. It's a reconnection to the self. A lot of musicians, artists. Buddhists seek long belts of solitude in order to reconnect to themselves. And a lot of that reconnection often happens in nature. So Trevor alluded to doing some activities in nature with others. But a lot of times, I think walking by yourself out in nature as a form of solitude to sort of refuel your yourself so that you can then be giving and energized to then connect with others. So I do think going back to just what you were saying there, Dan, is that, yeah, there are different points of entry for all of us. If you're an extrovert, you may be more courageous 
and you want to do kind of the bigger things. I know Trevor and I have talked a lot about block parties. It's something we're excited about, but not all of us are going to want to lead a block party. Some of us may want to compliment someone's shoes when they're with us in the elevator. Some of us, it's good enough just to pet the dog, talk to the barista while they're making our lattes, right? So it's sort of that there are different elements of entry for all of us. But yeah, just going back to the idea of solitude is not loneliness and that we should also reconnect to ourselves. And one thing on that point, as I want to mention, one of the interviews we have in the film named Sherry Turkel, who's been doing studies on technology and the integration of technology in our lives. And she says that our phones are sort of a shadow of solitude. So when we didn't have our phones and we didn't have all the games and all the different social media apps that we could scroll through to waste time and procrastinate with, that used to be time when we were reflecting, when we had time to be alone and thinking about life and things. And we're replacing those moments of solitude with our phone, which is actually detrimental. And so I do think that thinking about those things is really, really important. Solitude is important. You know, life doesn't have to be an endless series of connections. You need time and space for yourself to be alone and chill out. That's good too. Very good. Important. Totally. Thank you very much. This has been a great discussion with you, Tamer and Trevor. And I learned a lot about the ideas around reflection and solitude, forms of connection, and how we can build out the next great reconnect. I want to thank you both for joining me today. And this discussion is leading us into our podcast series that will be exploring the ability to build social capital. And to listen to our other podcasts or for resources, please go to our website, tamarackcommunity.ca. If you're interested in learning more about The Great Disconnect Film, you can learn more at www.thegreatdisconnectfilm.com. If you're interested in hosting a film screening within your community, you can follow the podcast description that's listed below. And thank you for listening and share this podcast if you enjoyed what you've heard. Thanks to my guests. Thank you, thank you Dan. Thanks, Trevor. Always a pleasure. Always. Always.